Please always consult with your physicians prior to making any changes to your treatment plan. Welcome to Living with Scanxiety, the cancer podcast, a podcast geared to help you navigate the pediatric cancer world. As a mother of a child who battled a soft tissue sarcoma for over a year, your host, Rosaria Kozar, understands and will help guide you through your journey. She brings the knowledge of experts, families, survivors, and other organizations tied to the pediatric cancer world to your doorstep. Her mission is to inform, support, and promote hope for you and your family. I think the most difficult situation um, was a, um, a divorced family with a teen um, that was in treatment and the disagreements between the parents about who the doctor should be, when the kid should do, you know, one parent being more lenient, the other parent being the caregiver scared to death for the kid to go anywhere or do anything or making, you know, and I think that was the most difficult with the kid getting caught in the middle between these two parents and having to normally navigate that situation. And now, you know, um, himself having, you know, the struggles with managing just kind of to get through his day. Hello, and this is Rosaria. Welcome to part one of France Place Center for Cancer Counseling with Dr. Francis Barbagarden. So stay tuned for this episode and the next one. Two totally different topics, and I know you're going to like them both. Now, a lot of our listeners are parents and or caregivers of young children with cancer or AYA, and that usually is defined by the age of 12 or 15 and over. So how would you help those parents in within those different age ranges? Uh, does it make a difference or what's your take? I'd love to hear it. Well, I think it, I think it makes a big difference. So, you know, for parents with young children, especially if they have other children at home, it's kind of really learning how to parent differently. If you've got a, if you've got a child at home, let's say an elementary school child on treatments at home, you've got a very different kid coming home on, on prednisone and the different steroids and the treatments. And if you have any other kids in the house, you know, the whole system can be turned upside down pretty easily. Can kids come in and play? Can they go out and play? You know, the behaviors, um, So, I mean, I think it's, you know, really helping the parents kind of navigate what their kids are going through, how to do it. And just even the hospital stays, the parents alternating being in the hospitals with their kids and being home with the other kids. So a lot of times it's not just even the child that's in treatment, it's all the other kids in the family too. And the parents having to work and kind of really just giving them a place to talk about their frustration, their anger, you know, and when you get you know, you know, when you're that emotionally upset and you have so much cortisol and adrenaline running through your system, it's hard to have patience for anything. And if you're tired and exhausted, you've been at the hospital all night. Now you've been at work and you're home and there are kids at home. I mean, you know, it just feels like the walls are vibrating and they never stop. And so, you know, giving the parents a place to talk and um, to deal with their, their fears and their grief and their sorrow. And also, you know, parenting and coming up with, you know, support systems and how to do that. I think it's a relief just having a place that somebody kind of knows what that looks like and understands Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, our young adult population is a little different because those kids become very depressed 
you know, my younger kids in treatment don't seem to get as depressed. The minute they're feeling better from treatments, they're playing and they're running and they're doing, you know, my teenagers and my young adults are really pulled out of their lives. They're missing out. All their friends are moving forward and they can't. They're in the hospital or they're on treatments. They've lost their hair. They're very depressed. They can't go to school. I mean, it's a whole different ball game for those kids. And those they, parents end up kind of treating them like their kids again. You know, even though, you know, especially my young adults that are like in college and have to come home, it's kind of like, okay, well, their lives are now totally turned upside down because they've lost everything. So now it's working with the teens and their parents and really realistically getting that settled and also working with the kids about school. And are they having any difficulties concentrating now or paying attention, getting them to back up a little? Some of those kids had to leave sports or dance, you know, or the things that they really love doing. Um, and of course, then the bigger issues of, you know, for the older, you know, teenagers and young adults, you know, the friend, their friends are out of bars and they're carrying on and, you know, all the limitations that come with this. So learning how to kind of bide your time and get through this and looking for the things that you can do and the things that you can enjoy. That's always the piece for me, this parallel life, no matter what age we're working at. Um, and then working with those parents to really, you know, let go and, and, especially our young adults and our teens, getting them to take control of the things they have to do at home to take care of themselves, getting the parents to back off a little, and then meeting separately with the parents and helping them um, through all of their anxiety and fears and concerns. You know, this is, you know, really hard for them. And if there's any other issues in the household, well, now we've got, you know, triple, triple deck of complications going on. What is the most difficult scenario that you have seen a family face and how did they overcome that I think the most difficult situation um, was a um, a divorced family with a teen um, that was in treatment and the disagreements between the parents about who the doctor should be, when the kid should do, you know, one parent being more lenient, the other parent being the caregiver scared to death for the kid to go anywhere or do anything or making, you know, and I think that was the most difficult with the kid getting caught in the middle between these two parents and having to normally navigate that situation. And now, you know, um, himself having, you know, the struggles with managing just kind of to get through his day. Um, and having his parents at such odds. So um, it took a lot of work to get those parents to kind of back up and to listen to their son, who was definitely old enough to have a voice about this and really respect his decision and his choices with what he needed and, um, you know, which parent was going to navigate for school for him and how they could work that out and, and, you know, backing up on any dreams they had for him moving forward to college because he wasn't going to be able to go that year and just, I'm I'm very fortunate in that I get a lot of respect from the parents. And Mm -hmm. so they listen. And I think maybe they listen because I know how their child feels because I've been in that body and I can say to them, listen, you know, I've been around this a lot. So life, you know, if if you can survive these treatments, life will go on. I've had a, a, a number of, you know, young adult college kids have to come home from school or leave school. If they can get through the treatments and if everything's settled down, they go back. They can start their lives again. I mean, this isn't, you know, you have to really be able to kind of stop and just kind of 
let things settle a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I'm fortunate in that I do get a lot of that respect. And so I'm able to really work with the parents, which is what all those teenagers will tell me. And all those young adults, they'll say, you know what, I'm really doing okay. Yeah, I'm depressed. And I, I want to be with my friends, but you got to take care of my parents because they're driving me crazy, you know? <laughs> and that becomes like the big, okay, just send me your parents. I'll take care of them. You know, <laughs> you just don't be stupid, be smart, you know, take care of yourself. I'll take care of the rest of it. And we team together in that kind of way. That's great. And my next question is in terms of anxiety, not my show, the actual thing. Um, what do you suggest for parents or the tips for parents to get through that time? Some very good cognitive behavioral therapy, learning how to kind of manage your thoughts, um, exercising, eating well, and sometimes getting a little bit of medication. Sometimes the anxiety is so high that there's no way our thoughts can control it. Our bodies are just rocking and rolling. Um, and so when you have an internal storm, sometimes just a little bit of anti-anxiety medication from your doc will help. And then you can put the tools in as far as, you know, you know, how do you reframe? How do you, use, you know, what do you do with your thoughts? I mean, you know, for me, you know, some of the easy tools without going into a whole bunch of clinical kind of steps, mm-hmm. I use the box a lot. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, what, what's this day about? What has to happen this day? And anything that isn't on this day's calendar, I'm going to put in a box and worry tomorrow. So if I wake up and I'm really, really worried and I can't get it out of my head, if I could just put it aside, it's safe. It's in the box. It didn't go anywhere, but I don't have to tend to it today. So for me, it's kind of like my winter coat in the middle of the summer. I know it's there if I need it, but I, do, I can't do it today. And sometimes I'll have to do that 20 times a day and that's okay. But really being able to separate out from it because today it's not the day that has to I have to deal with it. And the days I do have to deal with it, you know, there are some other cognitive skills that sometimes work and sometimes don't. Sometimes you need a little bit of medication, you know, mm. and just it's, it's got to be a very realistic for me, a very realistic approach because these anxieties and fears are very real. It's not like there's something that is out there that I'm just kind of maybe thinking about. And so for me, when you're dealing with a very real anxiety, um, you have to respect the body and you have to respect the body's response to that. And mm-hmm. it can't always be that you have to feel like, okay, I should be able to control this. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. You have to cut yourself a break. And if there's other help you need, you know, it's okay to get it. I just want to jump topics here. Now, a lot of people, parents um, that I've spoken with, have somewhat of a, they hold somewhat of a stigma against antidepressant medication because they want to feel the pain, whether it's their child's past, they don't want to take the depressant because they feel as if it will take away the pain and they won't have that ownership over it anymore. Uh, I don't know if this is making sense, but do you ever have people like that? And how would you suggest people to get over that stigma that they've kind of created for themselves? Well, I don't think you ever really get rid of the pain. It just matters about its intensity. Mm-hmm. So when the pain is debilitating and you can't do your life, 
and it's affecting the rest of the people you're connected to in your family, then it's not, it, it, it's not really helpful to anybody. Um, mm. But your memories, um, your emotions, that pain doesn't go anywhere. It's just a matter of whether, you know, if you can contain it. So for me, it's being respectful when you can contain your pain, when you can keep living, when you can stay connected to your family and your friends. Um, to me, it's when somebody dies, it's a lot about honor. How am I going to honor them? How am I going to live my life in honor of? Mm-hmm. And that's a little different than just living with the pain. Um, and like I said, if, you know, it's about the intensity of it. The pain doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that antidepressants do not erase the grief? Hardly. Hardly. Uh, there's no way to erase the grief. There just isn't. But it does make it manageable so that, you know, you can you can still do your day and you can still be connected. And, you know, you live this parallel life. You live mm-hmm. your life along with the grief. And they're just, you know, they're intimately connected and it never goes away. I mean, it's always there. But it has to be something that you can live with like the cue. It has to be part of you in a way that's manageable. Absolutely. And what about anticipatory grief? When you first are diagnosed, uh, we make a phone call to you. And how are you going to help us get through that? Well, I always try to slow things down a little bit. So it's like, okay, well, what do we know? And what don't we know yet? <laughs> and what's coming up next? Um, and what kind of questions do you have? So I try to get it from the emotional sphere into a more intellectual sphere. Let's kind of look at it. Let's, what do you, what do you need to know? What's going to happen? Let's talk about some possibilities. Let's not jump the gun. Um, so I try to really just slow the train down. Um, and I always talk to everybody about how that's the worst anxiety of any of the anxieties. That's the worst. I said, once you know what you're dealing with and once you're in it, as bad as that is, it's not as bad as this. So, um, and people believe me, which is good. So they say, okay, I feel a little bit better. So we're going to be able to do this. Yes, we're going to be able to do this. And, you know, we're going to be here and we're going to be side by side. And, um, you know, just all those things that help people feel like, okay, I'm, I'm not alone and I've got somebody to help me. If you had to offer the most important part or a piece of advice for parents going through this or caregivers. And I say caregivers uh, instead of just parents, because there are occasions where grandparents are the caregivers or aunts, uncles, etc. So what is the most important piece of advice that you have um, for people, caregivers? I'd say find a professional to talk to. We have a lot of tools and a lot of things that can help. Um, and you don't have to do this alone. I think that's the biggest piece. And you can't do this alone. You can't be in a crisis and think clearly um, and kind of you know figure out what to do. I mean, it, it just it's impossible. So that's what I'd say. Ask your doctors, ask wherever you're going for treatment um, to get somebody to talk to that can kind of help guide you, help you deal with, you know, all of the emotions and all of the issues. I mean, that, so you have, you have somebody there, you're not alone. That's the biggest piece of advice I can give. 
when treatment ends, I've seen parents or heard of parents acting like cancer never happened, but there's so many late-term effects, it's almost impossible. Uh, Is that helpful or is it unhelpful for a child? What would you say? It's not helpful at all because that child is going to go through a lifetime of long-term consequences. And some of them happen right away and some of them happen later on. And so when we have a child that recovers from treatment that seems to be functioning well, and then in a year or two develop some symptoms, you know, parents don't realize about the long-term effects, which is what that handbook was really written for those parents. And, you know, it's got a ton of research in it about what is it like having had all those treatments as a child and how does that affect you as you're growing up? Um, so yeah, ignoring it is very hurtful to the kids and damaging to them because they're, they have these things going on with them. And sometimes they get blamed for, you know, being depressed or not performing the way they should, or, you know, for all different kinds of things. And so, you know, ferreting out what's kind of normal developmental and what are side effects from the cancer is also really important to know, but you need to understand that there's no way you can have a physical body, at least in my opinion, have all that done to it chemically wise, any radiations, any surgeries, and it's a huge trauma to the body. And when we traumatize a kid's body, we know that their nervous system kind of develops differently, right? So you have kids that are more, you know, super sensitive, hypervigilant, any trauma to a child is going to make their nervous system kind of a little bit more vulnerable and sensitive than another kid would. And as they grow and the life situations they have to deal with and stresses, they're going to come at that in a little different way because their system's a little more vulnerable and more sensitive. And so they may feel the stress more than maybe another kid would. And so kind of just understanding the mechanics of what happens sometimes really helps parents kind of be there for the kid to learn when to push them, when to back off and be supportive. You know, what's that, (laughs) you know, am I moving forward or am I retreating and what's best for that kid and being able to evaluate realistically because they have all the information. It's like going into parenthood. If you don't address this, not having all the information you need for the roadblocks that you're going to hit. That's really interesting that you put it like that. It makes perfect sense. You don't want to live behind a curtain, so to speak, with uh, all of these things and then things pop up. What about siblings? Because I've seen also, I keep saying this, I've seen, I've seen, I've heard, but I have seen parents completely keep out the sibling if their kids are four years old, three years old, they know what's going on. And if their sibling is in the hospital and the mom is away or the dad is away and they're being cared for by somebody else, they know stuff is going on. So uh, what do you suggest in a scenario like that for a child that is young and has a sibling that's older going through um, cancer treatment? Well, I mean, just talking to them in the simplistic terms that you can, you know, and today we, you know, we have phones that you can see each other with and you can have iPads. So the, at least the, the younger child doesn't think that their older sibling disappeared. You know, they can see them, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they're in the hospital or connect. Um, so I think the hardest part is when those younger kids are separated from their parents, they have a lot of behavior problems and they start to act out and nobody has the patience for it at that point. So I think that becomes the biggest struggle is 
you know, having somebody consistent for those younger kids to be there all the time because parents are just not going to be able to be the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and then, you know, just taking care of the, the kids, you know, sadness and confusion about all the chaos that's going on. I mean, um, so it's, it's, it's much more about that than kind of just, you know, they can't, they can't understand the importance of the treatments, but yeah. So keeping it away from them, that their brother or sister is sick is not helpful. I, I believe in being very honest with all the kids always. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I try to explain this to parents, you know, parents of children or parents themselves that have cancer you know, kids only trust you when you're truthful with them and they can deal with any truth. But once you start to lie to them and hide things, then they never know what's real. And so, yeah, I mean, the kids that know up front what's going on. Yeah. You know, your sibling's sick. This is this, you know, your sibling's in the hospital and there's tons of books, you know, for children to kind of look at. And if you can, if they can see their sibling on, you know, an iPad or a phone, I mean, that part's not as difficult as the part of them feeling like everything's been displaced in the household, the trauma of losing the house and their parents not being there and not knowing who's taking care of you on any given day. And that is really what affects those siblings. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you have, you know, a couple of young kids at home in elementary school and one on cancer treatments, you have those other issues of and even sometimes for the teenagers being afraid, you know, being afraid you're going to get your sibling sick. So being very, you know, having friends over or not having them over, washing hands, changing clothes, you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, um, you know, I had one very interesting teenager that um, uh, didn't do anything, uh, wouldn't wouldn't go anywhere. And especially with COVID was, you know, wasn't going to risk bringing anything home uh, to his sister who mm-hmm. was undergoing treatments and said, I, I can do this. You're doing this at home. I can do this. You know, so, you know, that you love hearing that, you know, that just warms your heart. Yes. (laughs) But um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Definitely. It does. So I think that covers all the questions that I have, unless there's something else that you would want to include. Well, I mean, like I said, I could probably talk for forever. So I think we're good for now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me anytime. Thank you for tuning in to Living with Scanxiety. Please subscribe to hear more informative discussions like today's.